0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Jay Rahman, and I'm professor of urology at uh, Penn State Health, and I'm chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Um, I'm delighted to present another episode of our educational podcast series. and uh, This podcast is specifically going to try to highlight uh, one of our really neat white papers uh, that was put together by our quality and patient safety group looking at optimizing preoperative care for patients undergoing urologic surgery. It's really my pleasure to uh, invite and introduce Dr. John Stoffel. Uh, Dr. Stoffel is the Chief of Neurourology as well as Pelvic Reconstruction uh, at the Department of Urology at the University of Michigan. He uh, has been a member of the AUA Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee, uh, which is really where the white paper originated from. And his interest in this field has predominantly been both through uh, the Kips uh, group, but also uh, as a service chief for the Department of uh, Urology at the University of Michigan. I would point out for all of you that there are three white papers in this domain. Dr. Stoffel and I are going to speak a little bit about the preoperative evaluation. Uh, but certainly there's also an intraoperative and a postoperative evaluation, and we'll touch on those in later podcasts. So uh, John, uh, really thanks so much for joining me, and, and I really appreciate the time that you have today.
1: Well, thanks so much for uh, asking me to be here. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this. I think this was a great project by the Kips committee. I'll just add also this was all the under the umbrella as the project was originated by Dr. Kristen Krauser. Uh, and the preoperative paper was one of the three that uh, was was sponsored by the Gibbs Committee.
0: Great. So, I guess John, maybe we'll just start off and and talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, I, I think obviously all of us that do surgery we're we're acutely sensitive to the fact that we want to choose the right patient, and and obviously, hopefully, choosing the right patient minimizes our risk of complications that may occur. But how do you sort of identify, or what would you say about you know, identifying frailty, or even sort of the the mental cognition aspects in patients? Uh, maybe take me so, through some of the the thought
1: process there. Oh, thanks for the question, Jay. I think I think this is a very underappreciated part of the preoperative workup. You know, we as urologists tend to be very specifically focused on the urologic problem, and and. Looking actually at how these ancillary things affect the, impa- uh, the, the outcomes and ultimately the recovery time and, and ultimately success for a lot of these patients uh, is a, a growing group of, uh, of, of research that I think all of us as urologists and surgeons should be aware of. Um, frailty is something that is, I think, a key driver of complications in particularly larger surgeries. Um, some of the work, particularly by Dr. Anne Suskind at UCSF, and there's also been some additional papers published, looking at, you know, how dramatic patients who are defined as, as being frail, that can impact ultimately the morbidity and ultimately survival of it. Um, a paper came out by uh, Snathian in, in 2018, and, and something like three times uh, uh, increased more, morbidity mortality in um, uh, patients with… Uh, um, or um, more, Complications rather than mortality. Complications in patients who've had cystectomy who are defined as being frail. So I think it's something that is it needs to be on our radar as to what uh, um, we're looking at in patients when we're talking about the risks and benefits. Um, you know, when I'm thinking a little bit about how do we walk, uh, how do we think a little bit about frailty, it can really come down to a couple of key points, and we outline these in the preoperative white paper. Uh, I think good questions to ask the patients are just some key milestones and, and kind of overall picture of how they're doing key one is really is whether or not they've had weight loss in the last year and, and really greater than a 10 pound unintentional weight loss within the past year is a risk factor for frailty um, ask patients about exhaustion uh, i think we're all tired i think the pandemic has worn us all out but patients are really talking about exhaustion where they're not able to complete daily tasks they're not able to care for themselves, they're dropping out of activities that are normally routine, it's a key sign. Um, weakness about whether or not they're unable to participate in activities that they had before, that they they've stopped doing uh, exercise or, or other things that require physical activity. Um, you can watch how well they walk and if they're particularly slow walking, that's something also that is it should be flagging uh, um, concern and interest in, in, in your workout. And really looking specifically those things can point you to the idea that this may be a frail patient that could benefit from further evaluation by a a geriatrician or or partnering with our our medical colleagues to to work up and see if any of these things are are either modifiable or if they're not, it's good to have a frank conversation with people that this may increase your surgical risk.
0: You know, it's it's interesting, John, because, you know, so much of... I'll take myself, for example, a lot of my practice is sort of oncology, right? And, and we get so used to looking at laboratory tests, and we look at imaging, um, and, and so much of our decision-making is, is predicated on those factors, and, and one would argue that when you're looking at many of the issues you described here, uh, part of your physical exam and your evaluation is really, you know, the patient walking down the hall. You know, how well can they hop up on that exam room table when they're in the clinic with you? Um, and and it, things that seem to be very easily measurable or at least identifiable, but probably need to have more attention maybe placed on it.
1: I would agree. And, and I'd follow that also with as um, as surgeons, I think we need to be aware of shifting technology. I'm all for vir- virtual visits. I think tele- telemedicine has been a great boom to us. But these types of things also um, you know, can be filtered out and I think we need to be aware of when we're switching to more virtual care to be able to kind of find proxy ways to be able to either discuss this or to be able to evaluate the, the people uh, because you're right. I mean, a lot of the evaluation is just seeing the person come in and sits, getting up to, 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 to meet you kind of seeing how well they are uh, positioning themselves and able to stand and walk and you know, we'll have to be aware of these changes.
0: So let's talk a little bit maybe about a related question or, or maybe a related issue, which is um, cognition. Um, and, and, you know, I think we all think about, you know, these patients who maybe postoperatively are confused. You know, some people will even use the term sundowning. Are they aware of their surroundings? So what should we maybe you know, just broadly for all of us that you know care for these patients, what should we be looking at in the office? What should we be thinking about on how to assess this, particularly maybe in the elderly patient population?
1: And this is something also that I think was very interesting. When we we're looking at the the preoperative you know optimization in the white paper, and this is something that I think is also very unappreciated, like maybe not unappreciated, but but underrecognized in uh, um, uh, in, in the workup along with the frailty. Um, there's a direct line, I think, between baseline level of cognition and ability to care for yourself afterwards. And, and being able to identify some of those patients that may need assistance or additional help or be able to kind of explain in language that is, is, is meaningful and, and uh, able to be translated into, into good care afterwards is important. Um, cognition um, is, I think, an easy way to measure it. Something you know, we looked at in the, in the white paper was, Doing something that's essentially called a, a mini cognition test, and it sounds—if you go back to medical school—you think about all the different tests, uh, uh, mini mental status, and all those different things. But the, this this was a um, from from a paper of, of Sutherland in, in 1999, and and we liked it a lot because it's essentially just having the patient draw a clock, and then you the ability of the patient to draw the clock is is um, much easier to look at whether or not they're able to understand the different parts of it, mm-hmm. and. If, you're, if they draw a good clock and they're able to uh, kind of explain the different pieces of it, you know, probably uh, then there's good data to show that's that's pretty reasonable. If the clock is, is hard to understand or they can't explain how to tell time or what the hands are, you know, I think it should raise your suspicion. And so you know, that's not the only way to test for, uh, but some way to be able to make sure that the information that you're giving to the patient, not only that they're hearing, but they're able to understand and you know, then hopefully be able to translate that into you know, kind of uh, meshing with the care plan that you outlined.
0: So maybe you know I'll transition you, and maybe we'll talk about a, a few specific you know if you want to call it organ systems or or disease spaces, and and maybe what we should be thinking about as clinicians. And so the one that always comes up, perhaps one of the more common complications, is some sort of pulmonary issue postoperatively. And, and so maybe the question that I would ask you is, um, you know, who, who needs pulmonary clearance and, and what should we be thinking about would be appropriate pulmonary clearance for, for different types of patients?
1: Yeah, it's another great question. I think that um, when we were looking through all the different pulmonary literature and kind of putting together some of the recommendations in this, um, what really became uh, um, uh, noticeable was that pulmonologists are, are really recommending um, pulmonary function tests for, for patients who have uh, COPD. I think that's really the key group of people to identify for it. And I think what it does is, it, uh, reading through the literature and understanding, it helps the anesthesiologist with kind of the expectations of anesthesia and how how much positive pressure to use and, and, and you know, reduces morbidity from, uh, um, uh, from the anesthesia. Um, interestingly, I, um, what a lot of the recommendations were and what we wrote in the paper was that a chest x-ray really only needs to be done for patients who have a known baseline risk. And so maybe moving away from the idea that everybody needs a chest x-ray for screening, but talking with the patients if they have underlying pulmonary disease or concerns, or, or if you have concerns as a surgeon, getting a baseline beforehand is a good comparative for it. Um, I think something that that I learned a lot about by, by participating in this project was really, I think, the uh, importance of identifying uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, that's something that as, as um, one thing that you really uh, can affect a lot of post-operative uh, complications, uh, patients who have obstructive sleep apnea have significantly increased risk from both anesthesia and then morbidity afterwards. Uh, um, uh, one of the things that I think is a key way to be able to screen for that is asking people if they snore. Um, if they've snore, if they snore a lot, if they have daytime sleep, or rest their partner, sometimes they may not be aware. Uh, nocturia sometimes is, uh, um, is a, is a tip-off for that. But one of the things that I think may be very beneficial is people you have suspicion in should have a workup for that beforehand. And they may benefit from, uh, from a pulmonary sleep study. If they're diagnosed with sleep apnea, having CPAP or something um, may help a lot with recovery and then ultimately uh, um, less chance of complications. Um, that's something I think is underappreciated uh, uh, when we're talking or talking about overall risk, I tend to think a lot, I used to think more about, you know, these patients need uh, um, uh, pulmonary function tests to be able to kind of stratify risk. But really, if you're going to do anything, it would be work up for sleep apnea as one of your key questions. So I think that's a good take home.
0: You know, more and more surgery uh, is being done, uh, you know, minimally invasive or laparosc- laparoscopically, robotically, And obviously those cases require insufflation of the abdominal cavity. Was there anything that you or team came across when you compiled this that we should be thinking about just given that population of patients in the urology world appears to be increasing this whole minimally invasive surgery? Any specific considerations for that with with regards to pulmonary uh, issues or things we should identify?
1: Yeah, I think it's... uh... It's, it's a topic I don't know if I have all the answers for because I, I don't know if it's always and I don't know if the pulmonary issues are always uh, uh, completely well defined uh, preoperatively and I think that's something that we're trying to, you know, kind of increase some education for. Um, I think that uh, um, COPD is a big driver of, of um, the impact of, of approach of how you want to do things because it does affect the respiratory volumes and how they're going to manage the anesthesia. I don't have any recommendations. We didn't really notice any recommendations specifically regarding laparoscopy or, or robotics for it, but maybe sure. we bundle those into the ideas that anything that's going to you know, cause any underlying restrictive lung capacity or anything that's going to um, if patients aren't oxygenating well at baseline, I'm identifying that beforehand with either a chest X-ray or if you're worried about some COPD getting the pul- pulmonary function test to be able to to have that conversation with the anesthesiologist beforehand about kind of the needs for the for the surgical case versus the anesthetic needs.
0: So, so maybe transitioning from the pulmonary complications. Um, obviously, the the other big one that we all think about is the heart and and the cardiac tolerance uh, to given procedures, um, and and I guess. There must be some elements that we can elicit from patients, whether they're in the office or maybe from their history, that would give us some sense of their, their functional status and their overall um, maybe cardiac well-being. Do you
1: have any thoughts on that? I think that um, when going through this project, what was very interesting was um, how an EKG is not a great screening tool. And so a conversation really does need to be have uh, had with patients. Uh, just routinely getting an EKG it, it may not identify patients at risk as much as having a conversation about their functional status. And a lot of the cardiology uh, literature it really makes a, a, a big point of being able to stratify people by by how much activity they can do to, to kind of get an idea of their concomitant cardiac risk. And the levels that they um, had talked about you know, kind of both... Specific and sometimes, um, uh, overlapping, but, you know, they say that activity, if, if you're defined as poor, and they gave an example, if the only thing you can do is vacuum your house. It's your know, poor activity. Hmm. Um, probably up to debate, depending on, you know, uh, probably a lot of other things going on, but uh, vacuuming is considered a low bar for, uh, for activity. Um kind of moving up the scale a little bit you know they talk about what's what's moderate work and again they say you, know, you can do yard work it's moderate work and again some of these are up for debate a little bit but excellent uh, uh an excellent function says they, they mentioned scrubbing the floor interesting how this was all around home maintenance i mean that was you know kind of very uh, the, <laughs> it's kind of what they, they they did but things like jogging and and uh where they have excellent performance so um i think that just talking about what people do around the house and how they're able to function is a good place to start about identifying a little bit of their cardiac uh, function status, and you know I think then once you have that information, what do you do with it? And the cardiac uh, literature really makes a big point also about you know the um, workup also depends a little bit on the acuity of the case, and so in emergency cases it's good to know, but it probably doesn't change the uh, um, the, the, the timing of the case. And, you do what you you need to do to, to ultimately protect the patient the best you can. Uh, but for patients so for elective surgeries and and for patients that there's questions about poor functioning status, they really could benefit from a cardiac workout. Um, and I would make an argument even independent of what their of what their EKG shows because it may not be the full picture of uh, of, of, of cardiac tolerance under stress. Um, there's some risk calculators that ultimately people can look in the um, uh, in, in the white paper about that. Um, after, after doing this project playing around with it, very, very helpful to be able to just plug in some of these functional status case diagnosis. And it gives kind of a, a, a rough range of complications that you can talk with the patient about of whether or not there's risk for, um, of, of cardiac problems, uh, postoperatively. Um, it's kind of hard to do that, uh, during your, your preoperative workup, uh, um, talking with, with the patient, but you get an idea a little bit about what risks are, and you can, for patients specifically, you identify, it's worthwhile showing them that calculator sometimes, just so there's a, a, you know, kind of a a visual demonstration of this. One one other piece from cardiac uh, um, that I think is, is something comes up a lot is what to do with the patients with atrial fibrillation. And, you know, this comes up a lot for patients uh, um, that it's so well managed now and patients have good survival with it. And in general, some of the recommendations that are in the white paper that it's generally okay to stop anticoagulation for patients on atrial fibrillation as long as they don't have some risk of a thromboembolic event. And so the patients have a history of stents, if they have a history of previous clots, if they've had a stroke, it's probably pretty unlikely that you'd want to stop the the cardiologist would approve stopping the uh, um, anticoagulation. But for patients who are well managed with atrial fibrillation, no comorbidities, um, again, have the patients check with their cardiologist, but most of the time that's okay to stop the, uh, um, the anticoagulation for a brief window while you're doing the procedure.
0: So John, what what do we, you know, we see more and more of these patients who are on some type of anticoagulation, whether it's uh, one of the ones for the coagulation cascade, whether it's one of the antiplatelet agents, for example, maybe if they have a stent in place. and And maybe my question for you is, Certainly, you outlined a scenario for atrial fibrillation where it may be safe to stop it. What are some of the thoughts with regards to those that have more of these imperative indications, Uh, some sort of bridging regimen or or simply just doing the case on the therapeutic anticoagulation?
1: um, I think it's a great conversation to be having with the cardiologist. Uh, um, I think that somewhat, I think it's individual depending on length of case, uh, um, projected recovery, um, I think more and more. My personal experience has been that the cardiologists have been recommending trying to do as much as you can while they're on anticoagulation. That's been that's been a change from uh, practice management from before. Um, more and more, I think that they're recommending you know, do what you particularly for patients who have new stents and urgent urologic cases that need to be done is leaving them on the anticoagulation. Um, I, I I think there's people who are far more um, eloquent than I about the specific indications of when to stop and when to start. But I would just encourage people to talk with a cardiologist and and minimize the amount of stopping if you can for patients that uh, are are at risk. Um, It's a a devastating complication uh, that is, is important to avoid.
0: You know your point about these risk calculators is such a good one. and and I, I've used before, and I still use the, the ACS risk calculator. And it is humbling because when you actually put in the data into it, um, and it's hard to do in a busy clinic. but I, I think in some cases the 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 potential risks to the patient are higher than you would you would have thought if you just eyeballed it, frankly. and And I think you know, especially when I have some patients, when that number comes up higher than I expected, I feel like it's imperative for me to circle back and just make sure they understand that risk. So I, I think these risk calculators are very valuable.
1: I, I completely agree. And it's also helpful for, for, the, for, I think, the person who's having a hard time wrapping their brain around risks and benefits. I think a lot of people understand cardiac risk better than some of the other you know, risk of bleeding and risk of, uh, of you know, slow recovery. A lot of those are, are very abstract. But showing them a number on a, cal- on a calculator and a range, um, I think really does drive home kind of um, the importance of risk and benefits discussion.
0: So so we'll transition now, maybe talk a little bit about uh, GI preparation. And you know we we've gone through various iterations of um, you know bowel preps, yeah more bowel prep, less bowel prep, the benefits of bowel prep, the negative effects of bowel prep on physiology. Um, as you constructed the white paper with your group, what, what was sort of the take home message with this whole concept of the of the bowel preparation before surgery?
1: I, I think current uh, data and current information and the recommendation from the white paper is that um, there's no evidence that a bowel prep is going to include is going to improve outcomes with GU surgery, specifically things like cystectomy and prostatectomy. Um, reviewing the literature, there really is no directional or or solid evidence that shows a bowel prep will, will improve that. Um, where the, the benefit of a bowel prep seems to be is when colon is being used in any type of a case. And so if, if there's some type of a chance of, of colon uh, um, uh, injury or if there's use of colon in reconstruction, uh, um, that appears when there's there, there's clear benefit. And, and doing an oral antibiotic prep has uh, um, shown in that analysis to reduce the risk of its wound infection that it helps reduce the risk of it doesn't affect the recovery from a GI standpoint as far as we can see as far as the information that we, we reviewed or the chance of bowel complications but it seems to improve significantly the risk of a wound infection afterwards and there's you know several um, uh, there, there's several antibiotic bowel preps the Nichols one is usually the most common one that what well, people will use and that would be I think the maybe the biggest take-home point is, is that routine bowel prep for, for uh, urologic surgery is not necessary unless you're planning on using colon and then do a colon prep to likely reduce your risk of wound infections
0: so so what about um, uh, diabetes or, or and, and that's probably you know one of the most common if you want to call it you know chronically immunosuppressed conditions and we don't think about it as formal immunosuppression but but clearly there's probably risk to the patient, uh, if they're persistently hyperglycemic. What, what's some of the data that came out of your analysis just pertaining to uh, diabetes and what should we be thinking about as we look at these patients as maybe threshold values that we should be worried about?
1: It's, it's a tough uh, topic to manage. And uh, I think a lot of times you're doing urologic surgery for infections or because of, uh, of, of other underlying conditions that can keep the blood sugars very high. And so it's an important discussion to have with the patients. Um, One of the things that that we recommend is is that you look at the hemoglobin A1c really as the best way to determine kind of blood sugar control. Um, The the blood sugar at the time or immediately before surgery can be very misleading if they're not having anything to eat or drink or they've altered their data. But the hemoglobin A1c is is really kind of a measure of how well the blood sugar has been controlled longitudinally. Um, There are certain recommendations that, that came up and and we're looking at the national health system as, as one of them that um elective surgery uh for people with the hemoglobin a1c above eight percent um carries more risk of, of morbidity and slow recovery um i think that's a good number to think a little bit about that if you're working patients up for elective surgery and their blood sugar is uh, is um, difficult to control and uh, the hemoglobin a1c is above eight percent it's a, it's a thing to speak with the primary care physician about, have them revisit um, because it is something that potentially can be modifiable before surgery and giving them enough time. Um, another thing with the uh, patients with diabetes is that you know, their blood sugar is going to be very, um, uh, there's going to be a lot of variation with it. And so one of the recommendations has been to try to uh, schedule these patients early in the day. So you have better control of being able to kind of manage the swings in blood and uh, blood sugar for them longer that their uh, NPO, uh, nothing to eat or drink, um, it's harder to manage that. And that, again, can potentially affect wound healing or um, um, osmotic shifts in tissue. And so those two things of looking at the hemoglobin A1C, um, scheduling them earlier in the day, I think can really help improve uh, um, preoperative care for the
0: patients. So we, we've talked so far about things that we should be aware of uh, that could put a patient at greater risk. And, and I'm sure sort of the logical segue now is going to be, okay, what can we do to stack the deck in our favor? What should we be thinking about? What can we counsel patients on so that we can mitigate some of these, these risks? So maybe take me through some of the things that we should be perhaps encouraging our patients to do in the elective scenarios that will allow us to maybe avoid some of these complications. I
1: think the uh, um, the popularized term for this, which which I really like, uh, is called prehabilitation, getting patients uh, in shape uh, from some modifiable factors before surgery. Um, I think there's a few things that uh, stood out and we're looking at the uh, white paper recommendations, and one of the main ones was was really stop smoking. I think that uh, um, if there's one thing that you can ask patients to do, and it's mentioned so often that sometimes it loses its impact. But stopping smoking, um, there is a study, I don't have the author at the top of my head here, but there's like a 41% chance, uh, a reduction of risk of uh, of pulmonary and wound issues uh, um, if you stop smoking um, uh, within a reasonable time beforehand. Um, What's a reasonable time? I think any reasonable time, any time beforehand is good. There was some concern, I think, um, several years ago that if you stop smoking too soon, close to the surgical day to could cause a rebound uh, a pulmonary complication, but that really didn't prove to be, to be true. And so I think it's a good recommendation to tell people stop at any time you can. You probably get the best results, though, if you can stop at least four weeks beforehand, and you're going to uh, reduce your chance of pulmonary and possibly wound complications afterwards. Um, you know, there's a study, I think, that came out also that said even if you stopped a week before there's still like a 20% improvement of your risk for it. So, you know, telling people even if you're stopping a week before, it's good. You know, just do everything you can to reduce the uh, um, to reduce the smoking. Um, something that also doesn't get maybe talked about enough, um, but is now kind of much more people are much more aware of, uh, is stress reduction. I think that um, prior to surgery, kind of meaningful uh, um, ways to do stress reduction may have good longer-term benefits for people, both in being able to understand more, be able to uh, participate in your recovery more. But you know, there's probably a, um, some uh, relationship we haven't really been fully defined yet, that there could be less post-operative complications if your stress is reduced mm-hmm. preoperatively in kind of a meaningful way. Um, one of the things that comes up is, is that maybe we should be asking people to take time off before surgery rather than uh, in addition to afterwards. And, to get ready for things. And it's a concept that I think should be discussed. Uh, many times patients are working right up to the last minute to get everything done before they sur- their scheduled surgery for for, for uh, elective surgery. But maybe we should be asking people to you know, engage in stress reduction by taking a few days off beforehand to prepare. I think it's an interesting area that really we need to explore more. Um, another thing to consider is 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 nutrition. Uh, we have mentioned weight loss as a uh, uh, marker of frailty. But um, weight loss before, immediately before the surgery, sometimes pe- people will say, "I want to get into shape before surgery." But significant weight loss before surgery probably prolongs recovery time. I think hmm. it uh, um, really slows down uh, body's ability to heal and use a lot of the a lot of the building blocks for for wound recovery. Um, I always counsel people that you know, if you're going to uh, work on weight loss, we're starting that at least three months beforehand, not trying to do it uh, closer to the surgical date. Um, Those small things that uh, we can talk with patients about, stopping smoking, um, trying to reduce some stress, um, working on nutrition, I think really can pay big dividends uh, on getting people ready for surgery and hopefully to reduce some of the morbidity and recovery time of surgery.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. You you know, a lot of my practice is prostate cancer, and typically my, my schedule books out about eight to 10 weeks. And so one of the things I actually do in my office when I see a lot of these patients up front is I ask them if they walk. And, yeah. and I tell them, I want you to walk 30 minutes a day from now until the time of surgery. And in my mind, I'm not really looking for the weight loss, but I feel like they're getting some measure of conditioning if they're actually out and about walking around. So it's good to see that some of this ties into actual data that's out there on this concept of rehabilitation.
1: And, you know, I mean, I think that's also probably stress reduction. I think that helps out a lot. You know, Exercise is definitely shown to help with stress reduction. And uh, you know, that's, I think that's a great thing. I feel like now I should take a walk before coming to work.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, John, th- this has really been a, a great discussion. Um,
1: any final
0: thoughts or any take-home messages that you think for our audience before we sign off?
1: Yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for having us, uh, having me on this and discussing the, the, the Gipps projects. Um, I think that um, preoperative evaluation is, is really a, a team partnership. It's really hard for be a very, very important point to briefly discuss is that it's hard for it to to put it on one person or one team to be able to do. I think that one of the things we want to kind of highlight with this is just being aware of the different things that come up. And so that as the surgeon, you can help direct the care, maybe identify things, Uh, but it really does take a a team approach. And I think we've tried to integrate some of this with the preoperative center also to kind of raise awareness and partner with but, you know, this is something that it's, all these systems are so big and all the recommendations are are so evolving that it's really hard for anybody to stay on top of everything. I think just being aware of the potential things that um, are, are that, that we can look at or can talk a little bit about and then get people to see the right uh, providers and, 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 and create a care team to be able to help manage this, I think is really kind of maybe the overarching arching goal of all this, that we're all a big team and we really need to of rely on our, our partners to be able to help us manage and, and, and help people to, 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 to improve before surgery.
0: Well, that's really great, John. I really, again, appreciate the work that you have done, and as well as the, the team that put this white paper together. I, I do want to thank our audience um, for listening, uh, certainly Dr. Stoffel for his time. Um, I'd encourage all of you for more information to visit aua.net.org/university, and and certainly please look up uh, the white papers because I think that'll give a lot of information, uh, perhaps in even greater detail than what we spoke about today. Uh, again, John, thanks very much, and I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me.